This is alternative history. Darn it! This is alternative. <laughs> oh yeah! This is alternative history. anyone forgot we are the alternative history podcast but we haven't recorded an episode in a while because uh, rodrigo you were in el salvador uh how was that brian el salvador was pretty fun I was out there with my dad hadn't seen him in a little while we were hanging out during the world cup watching it kicking it, it was a good time yeah how, how did that go how did how do you feel about the world cup i uh i liked the world cup i thought it was uh i thought it was wicked how france beat everybody down and I thought that uh, my favorite player on that team was N'Golo Kante, and he looked like the Predator, only ball. What'd you think of that World Cup? <laughs> so, my father was born in Croatia, and they emigrated here in the late 50s, so big fans of Croatia, and we were, we were all rather pleasantly surprised that they made it to the final, only to be defeated by the French. Indeed, it was, uh, down there it was fun to watch, you know what I mean, like... In Latin America, people are always rooting for Latin American countries, of course. And so when it became an all-European semifinal, a lot of folks started gravitating towards Croatia. So it was cool to watch that as, yeah. a, as, a, as yeah. a underdog. Yeah, we watched it at Croatian Park on the south side of Milwaukee with a bunch of other Croatians. And I can only imagine that the aerial view looked like a gigantic picnic going on because of the checkerboard yeah, uniforms that they have. Yeah, so it was it was interesting to watch. I, I really I, I really got into it this year. Just I mean, most I was watching it. Before Croatia made it, and I made a concerted effort to learn about the game and try to understand it slightly more. Because as we mentioned, we well, we previously did a soccer episode, Brazil 1982, that we we put out re we we originally recorded it for it season was, one. Yeah, it was back when we were novices at this in our infancy. And now we're <laughs> slightly more. I don't know what, what what's slightly above a novice, but not quite. Uh, I guess I think we were in our infancy. Now yeah. we're kind of in our adolescence, if you will. And yeah, so we yeah. We, we, re, we reposted it as a throwback episode. We got rid of some of the swears. We got rid of the horrible sound that we did on that episode. It was it was a good throwback. And we did talk it. about the curse that we have. And I know you had reservations about putting out a Brazil episode before the World Cup started. And <laughs> we might have cursed them. I'm not sure though, because Brazil themselves played very well, but Neymar did not have the best. World yeah, team. yeah. And Croatia, we might have blessed them. Like we did, we did. I know we didn't make Neymar fall over and go boom as much as he did. <laughs> exactly. We don't have that power over over uh, physics and and the universe. So, as we mentioned, we are the Alternative History Podcast. We talk about a topic, debate it, decide whether or not talk about what actually happened, and decide whether or not it should have had a different result or perception. An alternative history, if you correct, will. and. As we said, we've done a soccer episode already. We've actually released two on the same one, and we're about to do another soccer episode today. Yes. Don't worry, fans. We're not turning into a soccer podcast. It just played out with it just happened. To, it was a sweet spot. We both read the book already that we're basing this episode on, and we did the work. And full and disclosure, kind of, yeah. I was supposed to be back before the World Cup, and we were supposed to record this episode, and it just played out wrong. So that's, that, it kind of messed up our schedule Life's a little bit. Life's gotten away. Exactly. So, so know, again, but. do not worry. We're not turning to a soccer podcast. We'll get back to some other topics very soon. But anyways, this this episode, we're going to discuss the North American Soccer League, the NASL, and the topic was that it really should not have disbanded. Yeah. And this, much like the 1982 Brazil national team, I had absolutely no idea that it existed. I knew about the, the Cosmos... And that was it. I just didn't realize that it was a huge league. I just thought they were a soccer team that played 
they were from the from New York that played against other soccer teams overseas. Well, we're going to get a little into it, but I know that you and I have a history of watching movies that other folks might not have seen, and I know that we talked about this off mic, and I just want to bring it up because you reminded me of my childhood. There was a movie about the New York Cosmos starring Pele that came out, you said, in 87 or 85, called Hot Shot, where it's yeah. basically Pele teaching some kid from the suburbs how to be a good soccer player. In my, in my misspent youth, watching a lot of movies wearing husky pants... <laughs> Because all I did was sit around and watch That's TV movie. and movies. Eat snacks. Eat snacks. <laughs> this movie called Hot Shots was on HBO all the time. And that's how I got introduced into to Pele and soccer, really. Um, I came out in 1986. And that, that was my... That was pretty much all I knew about soccer for the longest time was that. And my cousin and my brother played on the Croatian Eagles. And that was all I knew. For those of you that don't know, Milwaukee is kind of a hotbed of soccer in that we have a bunch of basically ethnic-based teams from from back in the day that are still in existence, still running. So as Brian alluded to, here in Milwaukee we have the Croatian Eagles, we have Bavarian, which is a German team, we have the Milwaukee Brewers, which is an offshoot of that team, also a German team. Uh, We have Milwaukee Sport Club, which is another German team. They have a restaurant here, which has a really good fish fry on Friday nights. We have a team called Club Latino, which was a Mexican team. So, for whatever reason, it wasn't really racist. It was just ethnic, like, pride. And, yeah. But some of these games back in the day when I was a youth got heated. It was it was really interesting to be at those games. <laughs> and so, uh, the reason we bring up, like, the movie, as I say, the, the Hot Shot movie, is that that movie was released in 1986. The league had already folded. It lasted from 1968 to 1984. So, the movie was in production before it ended. Before we get started... Let's talk about 1968 a little bit. Yeah, so the league started in 1968, and what we like to do here on the podcast is when we start at a fixed point in time or if we're staying in an entire... We're not going to be staying in 1968, but that's where we're going to start, so Mm -hmm. let's learn a little bit about 1968. So the top movies in 1968 were 2001 A Space Odyssey. Fantastic. Very good movie, yes. Funny Girl, The Love Bug, The Odd Couple... And Bullet, a Steve McQueen classic. I actually never seen that movie, but I know it has the greatest car chase scene in history. I think it's one of those movies that a lot of people haven't seen, but they act like they've seen it because well, they know they've, they've the, seen yeah. the car chase exactly. car chase scene with the with the Mustang. The Mustang. So, uh, other movies, Planet of the Apes. Fantastic. Yes, very good movie. Rosemary's Baby. Quite good, actually. I just watched that a couple months ago on just regular television, and I was kind of impressed. Like I thought it was going to be uh, lame. It was pretty good. I tried watching it once. I just I couldn't I couldn't get through it. I, I have a very short attention span now with with children. That movie was slow. I'll admit that. The movie yeah. Was a little slow. And movie. if I I really like if something doesn't get going right away, I have such a limited amount of time to spend for myself on like movies and stuff that I, I'll just I'll turn it off like, I, I, I gotta go to bed yes sir Night of the Living Dead also came out um, side note I I've never seen Night of the Living Dead the actual movie but I have seen the Night of the Living Dead puppet show by Angry Young Men Limited I believe they're a Milwaukee based puppeteering company I don't know if they still put it on but I did see it uh, at, yeah, at the Landmark Theater on the east side of Milwaukee and it was it was hilarious. It was great. And the Landmark Theater here is one of our classic independent films or independent theaters that we have in the city. Yeah. If you ever come visit, you check it out. Check it's really it out, nice definitely. It's being remodeled right now, actually, so I think it's going to open back up in time for the film festival in September here in Milwaukee. But yeah, if you're in Milwaukee, if you're new to Milwaukee, check that place out. It's fantastic. Highly recommend it. Yes. And another movie that came out, The Detective. So if you remember on the Die Hard episode yes. of the Alternative History Podcast, we talked about The Detective. It was... It was made before Die Hard. Based on the novel. Based on the novel. So Die Hard is technically a sequel sequel to Detective. Uh, 
but the More John McClane character had a different name, and it was played by Frank Sinatra. Yes, sir. So, uh, TV, we got uh, top TV movie shows, Laughing, Gomer Pyle, Bonanza, Mayberry RFD, I'm not sure what the RFD stands for, and Family Affair. So basically, all the shows that were on when we were little kids in black and white and syndication, shows that I essentially never watched. I always turned them off. Yeah, I, I've, never, I've never really watched any of these. Other shows that were going on, uh, Star Trek was wrapping up its second season. Which you know we watched. Yep, uh, and they were just beginning the third season at the end of 1968. And 60 Minutes debuted in 1968, and that is still running today. Top music, we got Hey Jude by The Beatles, Love is Blue by Paul Marriott, Honey by Bobby Goldsboro, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, by Otis Redding, That's unfortunately, met his demise in, in the state of Wisconsin, I believe. Really? I think it was a helicopter accident. Uh, I'm not uh, People Got to Be Free by The Rascals. And other music, we got Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. Born to Be Wild by Steppenwolf. Fantastic. Electric Ladyland was released by That's super Big fantastic, Jimmy Hen- by Hendrix way. Experience. At Folsom Prison was released oh, by Johnny Cash. Yeah, 1968 was yeah. a good year of music. That's Recorded live too. there. Yeah. And the White Album was released by the Beatles. I don't think that album's fantastic. I think they should have put all. I think they should have done. They should have grabbed all the good stuff from both those albums and just made it one album. I think you would have a fantastic album. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Top news: We got United States was in the midst of the Vietnam War. The President of the United States, LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, announces he will not seek re-election. MLK Jr. is assassinated, and you mentioned... Uh, Bobby Kennedy Bobby is Kennedy assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel yeah. in Los Angeles, I think in late in the year. Yeah. Uh, Richard Nixon wins the presidential election on November 5th, and the first murders attributed to the Zodiac Killer occurred on December 20th of that year. The year, uh, 1968 year in sports, the Green Bay Packers, woo, woo, they beat the Oakland Raiders 33-14. Vince Lombardi announces his retirement shortly thereafter. Later on that year, in the next season, the Oakland Raiders scored two touchdowns, two consecutive touchdowns in the last minute of the fourth quarter, and no one sees it because this takes place during the infamous Heidi game. For those of us that may not know or remember, now football, when it's on TV, they must show the end of the game. It can never be cut off. If, it's, if, it's, if it was a game that was programmed to be shown back then, especially in 1968, they actually made the decision to cut the game off and put the movie Heidi on. It caused a big controversy. <laughs> That's right. yep. uh, also, in 1968, in the, one, of, one of the first European championships, uh, Italy beats Yugoslavia 2-0 in a replay. Uh, the first game ended 1-1. Uh, the Tigers beat the Cardinals four games to three in the World Series. In the NCAA basketball, UCLA beats North Carolina. In NBA basketball, the Celtics beat the Lakers four games to two. The Summer Olympics take place in 1968 in Mexico, and the Winter Olympics take place in Grenoble, France, where Peggy Fleming is a breakout star. She's a nice skater, and she ends up winning Woman Athlete of the Year that year. I, uh, you mentioned Yugoslavia. I, I used to be Yugoslavian until uh, the country disbanded, and then I became Croatian. That's where Croatia came yeah. from, yes, sir. Yeah. So, soccer. Well, we're just going to go through a brief rundown of the history of soccer because we are we're, we're going to activate the history part of the alternative history podcast here, and uh, we'll keep it too kind of brief. Won't be too cumbersome. Most of this comes from FIFA.com. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can always you know verify. Double, verify yeah. So before you repeat it out on the streets. The term, so the term soccer, I always wondered why we called it soccer, and other than we already had a sport called football. 
which has next to nothing to do with your foot. So it, it technically it actually comes from the uh, term association football. It's it's like a shortening alteration of it, a very alteration of, 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 of the word association. So. So it's not nearly. I thought it was kind of like flippant of us to call it soccer, but apparently it, it was a term that was being used. For so, sure. yep. yeah. so the idea of, this, of a sport where a ball is kicked is nothing new in the history of mankind. Evidence suggests that in the second to third century CE China, uh, common era, China played a game consisting of kicking a leather ball filled with feathers and hair through an opening. The use of hands was not permitted, and this was played during the Han, Di- Han Dynasty, and it was called Su Chu. I think I. I think it's the Han Dynasty too, but I think you got Han? Su Chu correctly. Did yep. you say Han? I think you said Han. That's all right. Han, Han like Han, like Han, Han Solo. Solo. Yes, sir. All right, so I got it. All right, seventh, uh, eighth century saw the Japanese Kamari game develop, and that is still played today. This game it did not involve a struggle for possession, but rather it involved players standing in a circle and passing the ball to one another, trying not to let it hit the ground. So think, you know, a hacky sack. It was like a glorified mm. version of hacky sack. Juggling, if you Probably not done with such, you know, it probably wasn't a bunch of burnouts playing it. <laughs> living, who still lived in their parents' basement, but. Still want a hacky sack player. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry I, don't, I never played hacky sack. I apologize if I offended anyone who does play hacky sack. I just, I just, I never had the hand or the eye foot coordination it was enough just... to play. That's probably why I didn't play soccer. Agreed. And now that I think about it, I may have offended a bunch of soccer players. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> I think they're fine. Yes. All right. There's also a, a Greek game called Episkyros, and there was a Roman game called Harpatium, which no longer existed but had elements of uh, the modern game of soccer. Some form of the game persisted throughout Britain and Europe throughout the late Middle Ages, and in 1314, Lord Mayor of London issued a proclamation forbidding soccer being played in the city because of the chaos it created. So an early soccer game would it would just devolve into madness. It's kind of like what and, happened with football games here in the 1900s. Like when remember. In American football, it was banned because they basically play and it just turns into a huge brawl. Yeah. Soccer had yeah. the same origin story many, many years before yeah. football. So and so during the Hundred Years' War between England and France, uh, that lasted from 1337 to 1453. So for any of our math whizzes out there, it was over 100. More than 100 years. Yeah. Several kings made playing the game punishable by law because it prevented subjects from being proficient in military disciplines. That's funny. So basically, if they're playing soccer, they weren't learning how to shoot someone with an arrow or, or, or get or, hurt and that's not being able to participate smash their the face with a mace. Exactly. Uh, in 16th century, the new enemy of soccer was the Puritans, uh, claiming that the game was frivolous amusement and then it violated peace on the Sabbath. As was a tradition and pretty much still is there are plenty of games that get played on Sunday pretty yeah. much back in the day for a long time actually it was almost always played on Sunday like that's what yeah it got for. outlawed for a while it got uh, reinstated in you know I think in like the 1800s you could play it again but so and as we mentioned when we mentioned like games would devolve I have a quote from the website here that it kind of kind of telling us to how the game was played and how chaotic it was. Uh, primitive football was more disorganized, more violent, more spontaneous, and usually played by an indefinite number of players. Frequently, games took the form of a heated contest between whole villages, through streets and squares, across fields, hedges, fences, and streams. Kicking was allowed, as in fact was almost anything else. Really? Some- 
80 on 80. Yeah, I know. It, it, it doesn't sound like a game. That just sounds like war. <laughs> like, 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 like they organized a riot and, and called it a game. Exactly. Right? So uh, some kicking, uh, sometimes kicking the ball was out of the question due to the size and the weight of the sphere being used. And in such cases, kicking was instead limited to taking out opponents. So, so if they couldn't kick the ball, they kicked each other. It's basically like it's basically the beginning of rugby, football, soccer, all in one thing, essentially. Yeah, with then, like, yeah. but with a ton more people. Like it's insane. So uh, in the 19th century, uh, schools started to adopt the game, but the game was still rough and tumble. And some conditions like uh, time, amount of players, and techniques for moving the ball forward are still debated pre-match by the two teams. So, I mean, it, it was... Is, you know, this is how rugby starts. You know, you can't push the ball forward in rugby. You play yeah, backwards. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the rules would be arranged to, to meet the needs of the playing surface. So if they're playing on a field of... Grass. Rocks, mm-hmm. yeah, or a rocky field of, or grass. They would they would decide uh, what what could be done. And a very old soccer handbook from Workington in England stated that means outside of murder and manslaughter could be used to get the ball to the target. <laughs> I'm sorry. So that's pretty. You good. could you could basically, so basically anything, any, anything went besides murder or involuntary <laughs> murdering someone. <laughs> you just basically. You can't make the other people dead. Nah, like that's, that's the rule. That's pretty serious. There is a rule. <laughs> Everyone needs to be breathing by the time well, this game's over. Exactly. Whatever happens afterwards in the pub, that's fair game. But on October 26, 1863, 11 London clubs representatives met at the Freemasons Tavern to discuss the game. Rules that were set were no carrying of the ball, no kicking in the shins, and no tripping. So so the first laws yeah, of the game. So we're, we're finally getting closer to what the game looks like now. And on December 8th, 1863, that's when soccer and rugby basically split. They, split. Yep. they moved away from each other and started to become very different games. Oddly enough, the town of rugby did not want to give up carrying the ball, which up to this point was acceptable. Uh, the game was further split six years later when soccer rules stated that not that not only carrying but handling the ball in any exception, any way was unacceptable. I read a book called The Ball is Round, A Global History of Soccer by David Goldblatt. And in it, they say that basically it would also pushes the games apart all these is that in each school the kids would go and they were playing whatever one of the new rule was so in rugby like you say the kids that were going off to school in different places brought rugby that's why rugby continued to develop yeah. and soccer itself continues to develop in other schools and once these kids graduate they go on to be uh they go on to join the navy in england and as they join the navy they go all around the world and this is how the game is spread is when they land in ports so that's why when you see teams in latin america they have a bunch of English names. So you have teams like Arsenal. You have teams like Corinthians in Brazil. You have teams like uh, like, like well, Wanderers. You, know, you have English names all around Latin America because the British were the ones that really brought the game to the world. Yeah. 1904, uh, FIFA is established in Paris. And 1930, the first World Cup is played. Uruguay wins. Uruguay won, yep. And rules changed slightly in 1938 and again in 1997, but essentially the game we see today was what was set forth in 1863. And the sport as we know it today has spread uh, from England to Europe, Asia, Africa, South and North America. And North America, that leads us to the NASL North American Soccer League, 1968 to 1984. Yes, sir. So I have that the NASL essentially started in 1968 and it's basically a combination of two leagues. Essentially, groups of businessmen had watched the 1966 final in England. These businessmen noted the sold out stadiums 
of the World Cup and they thought they could emulate this in the US. Rival leagues started, one with pirated teams from Europe and one with American franchises. Yeah, so the, the, the two leagues, there was the uh, United Soccer Association, USA, USA. was their yeah, moniker, yeah, yeah. clever, and the, the National Professional Professional Soccer League. Correct. Yeah, and so that one's like, it's kind of a mouthful. And so the USA, basically the league, the USA, host teams from Europe. Yeah, and they just gave them a new name. like. But similar to the names they had. So, for example, Wolverhampton Wanderers from England end up being the LA Wolves. Stoke City ends up being the Cleveland Stokers. A couple don't really have the same name. For example, Dundee United was a Dallas Tornado. And while teams from South America end up in New York and, and Houston. This wasn't a real league per se. As I say, it was a pirate league. But they were able to provide a lot of money to the USSF, the federation here in the United States, the United States Soccer Federation. FIFA names the USA the sanctioned league and not the MPSL. Yep. So because of this, because of this, the MPSL ends up having an adversarial relationship with FIFA, and by backing the pirated league. FIFA essentially makes the MPSL a Renegade League. The English FA backs this and states any player that played in the Renegade League would be banned from English football. Neither league does very well attendance-wise, but the MPSL essentially delivers a death blow to the USA as the MPSL secures a television deal with the CBS. The leagues merge in 1968, forming the NASL. This misstep, if you want to call them unwanted twins, if you will, and this adversarial relationship with the FA is essentially microcosmic of the problems with the league, essentially from the start. And furthermore, expectations of this league were very high and lofty, and the press's knowledge of the game was lacking. Uh, after the 1968 season, 12 teams pulled out of the league. Basically, people were hemorrhaging money, and attendance was quite low, like in the low thousands. There's a guy named Phil Woosman who played in 1967 and coaches in 1968. He ends up quitting and coaching in 1968 and becomes commissioner. The 1969 season only had five teams, the 1970 season had six teams, and the 1971 season had eight teams. Yeah, and just remember the name Phil Woosman. He, he's almost, I almost want to say he's kind of like a tragic figure in all of this just because of his wide-eyed optimism that he had for the league. Like I said, you jumped me out. I was going to say something that he said earlier, and then we just jumped right into it. But he essentially says, right off the bat, he, he says, the sport will take off. There's absolutely no way it will not bypass everything else. The country will be the center of the world of world soccer. In the 80s, there will be a mania for the game here. There will be 3 million to 5 million kids playing it, which might end up being true. And North American Soccer League will be the world's number one soccer league, and it will be the biggest sports league in the USA. Believe, I believe I almost said a verbatim, word-for-word quote about this podcast before we started recording it. <laughs> And, yeah. and here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Still sitting in an apartment in, in the glorious River West neighborhood. Yeah, take it over. Recording it. So we'll get there though, Rod. We're getting there, working on it. So basically the league survives because of Woosman's determination, grassroots movements, and Woosman's chance meeting with Neshwi Erdogan. He's the Atlantic Records executive. Uh, they met at the 1970 World Cup in Mexico. Atlantic's parent company, Warner Communications, eventually formed the New York Cosmos. The league develops a reputation for being a retirement party league. It is that, but it's more. Let's take the following anecdote. So the New York Cosmos play the Boston Minutemen in June of 1975. After having signed Pele to the Cosmos in 1974, the Minutemen 
signed Eusebio. Essentially, two of the world's greatest players from the prior decade. Can you say that guy's name again? Eusebio. Okay, I was when I was reading it, I was not saying it like that in my head. <laughs> just FYI. That's good. Uh, both had been, both had legendary World Cup careers. Pele having won three, and Eusebio leading Portugal to the semifinals in 1966. Uh, he provided he provided an amazing individual performances throughout the entire tournament, leading the tournament in goals. This matchup in June of 1975 was only the third time the players had faced each other in competitive matches. Pele Santos had defeated Eusebio Benfica in the International Intercontinental Cup in 1962, and as I said, Eusebio's Portugal had knocked Pele's Brazil out of the 1966 World Cup. Boston wins this matchup 2-1. to one. Eusebio scored a goal, Pele scored a goal, which was disallowed for offside. Before people knew it was disallowed, fans rushed the field and start a small riot, ripping off most of Pele's clothes, and Pele leaves stretchered off. The game is abandoned. Uh, at the end of the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, after Brazil wins, fans rush the field and strip Pele of his clothes, leaving him only in his underwear. Jeez, there are photos. Is that a common occurrence. Nope, but there are <laughs> okay. photos and videos of That's this, assault. which are now iconic images. Uh, he here in 1975. He fakes an injury because he's frightened from this riot, and that's yeah. why he stretched it off. So basically, there's a rematch of this game. Cosmos win 3-1. to one. Pele has an assist, and Eusebio limps off early. First game, because of the riot, had to, had to be replayed. Neither Pele nor Eusebio play in the replay. After the 75 season, the Minutemen are in financial trouble. The Minutemen are not the New York Cosmos, especially well, in the financial sense. Uh, real quick about that game, I, I believe that game was oversold too, wasn't it? I think that's yeah, part of the reason yeah. uh, the rise hit, of course. Investors are not making money on the investment, and attendance numbers are poor in Boston. Whereas the Cosmos, with the backing of Warner Brothers, operated as a European team with all amenities and luxuries, gear, and first-class travel. For us who don't care about soccer that much, us, our listeners, think of Michael Jordan when he joined the Barons, the baseball team, yeah, and he was driving around. Only think of that with a much cooler and more Debo boss. Like yeah. that's what it was. Uh, Boston trades Eusebio after the 1975 season. They trade him to the Toronto Metro Croatia. This was a merger of two teams, specifically the new Toronto North American Soccer League franchise and the Metro Croatian franchise from the Canadian National Professional Soccer League. Uh, Eusebio scores several goals throughout the season and has a good run in the playoffs, scoring in the semis and in the final. I reiterate, it's two of the game's biggest stars of the previous decade. Pele and football's other household names like Johan Cruyff and Franz Beckenbauer, these are the biggest names in the world at the time, were a perfect fit for America as America loves stars. Eusebio, George Best, Gerd Mueller are smaller stars, but nonetheless superstars. Think of Pele and and Cruyff and Beckenbauer like the sun and these other guys as like other big stars in the universe. Sure. They're huge. And uh, all of these players are well past their prime. And in Pele's case, he was brought out of retirement. So fine, they may have been old, but it's amazing to me that they all played in the same league. And when you think about it, 40 years later, this constellation of stars seems almost unreal. Where there were plenty of over-the-hill players from Europe, there were big names who were in their prime. Players like Rodney Marsh from England and Teofolo Cubillas uh, from Peru. The league is compromised of players from all over the world, but mainly from the CONCACAF region and players from England and, Europe, and Eastern European countries. All players in their prime. So, like I say, it develops this unfair, unfair reputation because their stars were old, but most of the league were young players that were ready to play and knew what yeah. they were doing. Uh, in fact, we have some future stars that become World Cup participants that appear in this league when they are young as well. For example, Peter Bardsley uh, from England plays at Vancouver when he's 20 years old. 
Hugo Sanchez from Mexico. He ends up being Mexico's greatest scorer. He ends up going to Spain and leading the league in Spain five years in a row. He played for San Diego when he was 20 years old. Graham Saunas, who ends up being a coach and a player, also played for Montreal when he was 19. And Trevor Francis played for Detroit when he was 24. So again, it's not really an old retirement player league. It's more of like a young development league. There are also some successful American stories as well. The league has its first household name U.S. soccer star, Kyle Rote Jr. of the Dallas Tornado. There's also Chris Barr. He was son of U.S. international Walter Barr. Walter was on the team that beat England 1-0 in the 1950 World Cup in Brazil. He was voted Rookie of the Year and promptly quits and becomes a place kicker for the Cincinnati Bengals. Maybe that's not such a great American story, but it's still kind of funny. My dad told me I should have done that. I probably should have listened. I stuck stuck with soccer. Uh, In 1973, in their first year, the Philadelphia Atoms, with six U.S.-born players, wins the championships. How many? One, two, three, six Atoms? Exactly. Americans. (laughs) The NASL was a league that provided opportunities for European players playing across all levels in Europe to come live in America during a rather vibrant time in the U.S. when compared to that time in Europe. And it allowed these players to make a lot more money than they were making in Europe. So the NSL and its recruitment, they targeted players that were in lower-level teams that Mm -hmm. weren't really rich. So they would just loan those players out. This is both good for the players and the teams in Europe because... You're making money off idle players. Sure. Your players get playing time and clock. And here in the United States, you have decent players playing the game. And the wages were significantly better. There's a guy named Derek Spaulding. He says when he came from Scotland, he arrived from Hibernian to play for the Chicago Sting in 1978. Here in the U.S., it was around $25,000 per year when I came over. And maybe it was 100 pounds a week at Hibs. So, like, there's money here. You know yeah. what I mean? They're making their cash. What's interesting is that basically the European players, especially the English players, are brought in and part of their contracts are to teach the game to Americans. So they have clinics, right? Like that they go throughout the entire country, throughout the state, wherever they're playing, and they teach the game. And we have a bunch of people from all over the area that are helping them out. So like the Caribbeans, uh, people from the Caribbean islands who basically have that Anglophile history also come teach the game because English is such a common language. They were able to do this a lot. You know, they were able to save money on their rosters too because they had players from Central America and South America who didn't command as many wages. They couldn't teach as much. There was a rule that there had to be a minimum of two, a minimum of two U.S. players on the field. More often than not, one of those positions was filled by a goalkeeper. This is crappy for young American players trying to develop. It's interesting, though, considering that the United States has a history and reputation for developing goalkeepers. Mm, that was the genesis of it, possibly. Exactly. And uh, there were some real good clubs that developed that were true soccer clubs and held, that had healthy fan bases that set up real traditions and real rivals like Portland, Seattle, Vancouver, Minnesota, and the New York Cosmos, as well as some others. I like the Pacific Northwest teams because they had legitimate beef as fans and as claimants to who has the better city or better soccer. And they provide an actual European or South American-like atmosphere for the games. And they are actually, in my opinion, the backbone of the current MLS. I'll come back to that a little bit, lo- a little bit later. I also really liked the story of the Minnesota team. I'm going to quote this from the book that we read by Ian Penderleth. Yeah, well, let's, uh, yeah let's give a shout-out to Ian Plenderleth. Rock and Roll Soccer, The Short Life and Fast Times of the North American Soccer League. It was a book that we both read. A good chunk of this data that we're spewing back out here is from from this book. Some of the stuff is a direct quote. So in fact, this would be a direct quote. 
For young people in the upper Midwest Twin Cities area of Minneapolis and St. Paul, in the late 1970s, the soccer game was the place to go if you wanted to get high, get drunk, or get off some. A peculiar set of circumstances turned the parking lot outside 49,000 capacity Metropolitan Stadium, the Met, in Bloomington, a town 15 minutes south of Minneapolis city border, into a bacchanalian celebration of all things that youth the world over will do if given the time, the space, and the passive permission. It was permission. a regular Sodom and Gomorrah in that parking lot. <laughs> so so essentially it was that they had free parking and the ticket prices were really cheap. And you could basically, they would just sit out there, like it would get there hours before the game and, and you know, uh, libations and copulations you know so for us here in the midwest i'm not sure it's like this elsewhere for sport wise but we we have this thing that is called tailgating tailgating right yeah. and so it basically just means according to mr plenderith he says it's it just means picnicking picnicking quite elaborately in the park in the car park outside sports stadiums before a game that's what we've done our whole lives <laughs> that's however a good way to put it you know, the kick fan the kicks fans this is the minnesota teams were into much more than tame tailgating though Tailgating was what older fans of the Minnesota Vikings football team did in the winter in the same stadium. This was a summer celebration with fewer clothes, fewer inhibitions, and a lot more recreational drug taking. And was also going to be more lively than a mere setting up of a portable grill to make burgers and hot dogs with a couple of beers to wash yeah. it down. It, it, it seems like it was... Uh, the So the the Milwaukee Brewers are we're, we're pretty well known for our tailgating for a game same with the packers too this seems like it, it like our tailgating is kind of somewhere between the the lame viking one that he mentioned in that and what the these guys at the Milwaukee or the minnesota kicks were doing not nearly as much debauchery goes on in the parking lot of miller park but i mean there is a good there's a good amount that does i mean some there there were times where i would go to a game at miller park we would drink and tailgate You'd go in around the third inning and you come out in the seventh. Fifth or sixth yeah, inning. but that was back when they sucked, right? It was easy to do that. Well, and also here in Milwaukee, the tailgating history is what kind of leads to the departure of the Milwaukee Braves. So yeah. back in the day, in, 19, in the 50s and 60s, you know, we the fans would tailgate in the in Miller at that point County Stadium parking lot, and then they were allowed to bring their coolers into the game. All of a sudden, one year, the, the owner said you guys couldn't bring the coolers in no more, and that was a big problem for the fans. And, in fact, they yeah, lost. They were... That was the first year that they didn't have, like, whatever the benchmark was. I think it was 3 million fans or 1 million fans a year. That year where they implemented that, right. they stopped. Are you going to tell me yeah. I can't get drunk off my own hooch? <laughs> they were trying to You sell, ain't the boss of me. They were trying to sell concessions on it. Yoink! <laughs> Take your team away. Exactly. So, yeah. So, point, we lost our team because of freaking coolers. Damn it. Exactly. And to your point, the kicks offered... Free parking at the stadium. This is another rarity in the U.S. where steep parking fees were and still are considered an important part of match day income. I can attest to this because I love the Milwaukee Bucks. I go watch them all the time. And parking down there in downtown, Please. it's like 20 to 40 bucks just for Hell, no. That's what I mean. It's very expensive. Take me a bird scooter down there. <laughs> the Kicks took a $114,000 loss on parking, which it had to pay to the stadium authority that owned the Met. I wonder what how much of a loss they took on like cleaning up bodily fluids out of the parking <laughs> the lot. Whoa. Uh, the kink the kicks were an interesting franchise because they essentially employed guerrilla marketing. They offered free parking, sold cheap tickets, and let people do whatever they wanted in terms of tailgating. 
for as long as they wanted and didn't restrict anybody with anything they were doing. They did a good job of winning over the fans and as such were able to sell a ton of tickets. Yeah. Uh, yeah, their attendance was really high for their first couple of years. Yep, like like record said. I forget exactly. the, the numbers from the book, but it was it was I think like in the thirty to forty thousand forty thousand. Really good, exactly. Wise, yeah. Teams like Minnesota and Portland and Seattle don't have to turn to on-field gimmicks. They essentially had naturally large crowds providing good atmosphere. There were teams like the San Jose Earthquakes that had to resort to gimmicks to bring people in, like hiring superfan Crazy George. That's crazy with the K. Who would, oh, oh yeah, yeah. When you're, that's that's a whole another level of crazy. Who oh. would, he, he, he would incite fans by, among other things, dousing the opponent's bench with beer. You couldn't do that now. Oh, uh, you could no. not do that yeah, now. Could, <laughs> this is start a fight. I know uh, what Charles Barkley would have done to him. Exactly. Or how the, the franchise in San Diego would rent the San Diego chicken to entertain the fans. Eventually, some of these franchises, like San Jose, have fan bases that understand the game and they don't need gimmicks to draw. However, there are places like Tampa Bay where they're all about the gimmicks all the time and forever. The Rodgers gave away free everything, like free Frisbees, free yeah. shirts, free bags, free whatever you can think of. They would try to put a Rowdy's logo on it. I also really like the Cosmos. Uh, the Cosmos played the best attacking soccer in the league. Of that, there's little dispute, but they were the rich. This is a quote, by the way. This is not me. They were the rich, arrogant sons of bitches that, that everyone else came to dislike at best and set out to kick off the park at worst. They're essentially the villain. They're like the New York Yankees. I mean, they didn't have like the long history, but they were they won a lot. So exactly. Again, as we said, the the, the league survived because of Woosman and his meeting with Ayrton, the Atlantic Records executive. Four years after the creation of the New York Cosmos, they convinced Pele to come out of retirement and sign him. The Cosmos took defeats very seriously, and not just the players. A player named Iruski uh, recalls how before the return leg of a game, two days later, Warner Communications President Steve Ross, who was effectively the Cosmos boss, paid them a visit. He comes to Giant Stadium in his helicopter and made it clear that we couldn't do that to him, how he'd been embarrassed, and that the people he'd been bragging about to the Cosmos for business reasons, weren't impressed by results like that. So basically, it was a playoff game where they got smashed the first round. And then, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happened in the second round, but that's what occurred. The Cosmos go on to win five championships. They were called Soccer Bowls, including one with Pele in 1977. An awful lot of money spent on this team. Like I say, Pele's on it. Beckenbauer plays on this team. They were a glamour team selling out road games every year. And like I say, Warner Brothers owned and ran this team. The MSG group owned a team in Washington. For me, this is fascinating when you consider that the league folds. It's a lot of money between both those companies and they yeah. were with a lot of intelligent businessmen and they couldn't figure out how to manage the league. It's kind of ends up being a little depressing if you think about it. Yeah. But it is what it is. And it's like rampant mismanagement. It's important because when this league started in 1968, the other sports were not yet the other sports. Hockey was bigger and has fallen off since. The NBA was still basically the Boston Celtics Invitational as we exactly, yeah. beat the Lakers yeah, they were, earlier the year. In the NFL, Russell. only two Super Bowls have been played, and baseball is beginning one of its many declines in the, yeah. in the late 60s. So basically, the NBA doesn't get good until the 80s. The NFL essentially now is starting to take over, and within three to five years of 68 is the main sport. 
I think if managed correctly, the league would have been truly successful. Yeah. It just didn't play out correctly, mm-hmm. unfortunately. A report, it was called The Strategic Plan, is published containing in it very sensible suggestions for going forward. Two of the main points were a single team cannot come to dominate the league and that the team, the league should not be expanding. Basically, they didn't want the Cosmos taking over. In 1977, because of Pele, they were already beginning to upstage the league. I think this is silly and it's an issue. They kind of should have let the Cosmos just keep taking over. Kind of like the Celtics, like you alluded to, or the Packers, I mean, or the we're, Yankees. We're, I, like, if you look at an analogy to what's going on today, like the NBA, look at look at wa- or the Golden State, Warriors. Golden State Warriors. I mean, they just signed Boogie Cousins. Which is it's like, it's like they're, they have so many, like, they have an all-star at every position. But the, for some reason, the NBA just keeps getting more and more popular and it's keeping up more and more momentum. As much as I hate to see stuff like that, like I like parody. I, I enjoy seeing other teams win, mainly just because it gives Milwaukee me a chance. Whole, Milwaukee yes, a chance. Exactly, agreed. But I think a lot of I think a lot of fans love to hate. You know, the stars, the, the, star, the big team, the big, not team, even the, star, yeah. the big big team, exactly. And like, that's what drove the Major League Baseball for so many years in the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, when the Yankees, Yankees were, winning were winning almost essentially every other exactly. championship. Yeah. And like I say, the Celtics and Lakers have won. Half of the championships that have been played. Like, just think about that. It, it's ridiculous. So, I think that if they would have let the Cosmos keep doing it, you A, build a big Cosmos fan base, and B, big a hu- build a huge anti Cosmos fan base. Yeah. As, like, someone who, like I said, I travel to Latin America quite often, and I rep my Wisconsin and Green Bay Packers stuff all the time. And so, shockingly to me, one of the first times I visited, there were plenty of El Salvadorans who spoke English because they lived. In the United States, so one of my dad's friends spotted me wearing a uh, spotted me wearing a Packers shirt. He's like, "Yeah, I lived in San Francisco for like forty years. I hate the Packers." <laughs> that was hilarious because, like, like I say, the Packers have built that franchise. Yeah, we here in Green Bay love the Packers. We love the Cheeseheads, but everybody I talk to outside of us don't really like the Packers. I, I, I've, I've, the advent of Twitter has made me realize how how despised certain parts of our state. Can be. Things of our state can be, <laughs> Packers being chief among them. Exactly. So back to the, the, the strategic plan. It classified the, the league's 18 teams from 1977 as follows. Ten were standard and eight were below standards. There had been uncertainty and volatility in the post-Pele era, and the desire for franchises was at an all-time high. Many franchises were bought and sold and put back in places other franchises had left. This was a problem for future stability. Again, terrible mismanagement. The strategic plan suggested that the league should expand slowly. The committee that formed the strategic plan observed how slowly expansion had occurred in other sports. I found this actually quite fascinating. NFL teams, NFL expanded to 28 teams over 52 years. Baseball, at this point, had expanded to 26 teams over 101 years. The NBA had expanded to 22 teams over 20 years. And at this point, the NHL had expanded to 18 or 59 years. So basically, the, the, the league felt that to be taken serious by the media, owners thought that having a 24-team coast-to-coast league was a way of doing that. So I got I got some um, some numbers from Major League Baseball. So since 1899, Major League Baseball has had a total of 56 separate teams. Just of, when? I'm sorry, say again? Since 1899. Okay. They've had a total of 56 separate teams. The NASL had 67 teams in the 16-year run. 16-year no, run that wow. they had. So Think about that. That's insane. 
They had 67 teams, and of those, some were relocated. So in total, they had 43 separate teams. But so they had 67 different versions of teams in in the in the some odd years. And it, it's insane that there was so much turnover. And like like if you look at it, like when you work at a business or anything, if there's a lot of turnover, you know something is not healthy. Or like whatever industry exactly burnout yeah. of employees or people yes. just not being happy exactly. And like to that end, there were plenty of reasons that teams would leave. So one of the ones that they cited here was the team in Boston. It left for many reasons, including bad gates. They just couldn't get a lot of people to come. And they could never play their home games on Saturday nights because there was some sort of legal conflict with the Boston Raceways. Again, so many mistakes in management. Yeah. One of the things that also was a mistake by the league was that they really valued an, 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 a national television contract. So in the early days, that's what kind of saved them was getting that contract with CBS. But... It turns out that the focus and the need for a national TV contract was both misguided and rather pathetic, according to the strategic plan. The, the strategic plan actually recommended focusing on local TV contracts and stated that having a national TV contract not properly thought through leads to poor ratings and the risk of a national contract being axed for the third time in the league's history. When we were kids, we could watch the Milwaukee Brewers on Channel 24. Which was yeah. like the syndication channel. Like that was back in the day, the local TV contract. Like, yeah. We, I think it was, it was all the road games, right? We couldn't watch any home games. I think that's what it was. I think it was something like that, yeah. It was usually the road games. And they made money doing that. And then eventually they got their, their contract with cable where you could watch all the games. But it's yeah. still basically a local contract, not mm-hmm. a local contract, which makes sense. It's how you make the money. Yeah, definitely. Money mismanagement, misguided television contracts were two of the major issues that caused the league to fail. Another error in judgment, as we alluded to, that was perpetrated by the league several times was the insistence on expanding, which I don't necessarily think was a bad thing. But the problem was that the expansion was that the league kept on going to places they should not have and kept on returning to places they were already had already failed, like you said. Just as the league was embarking on significant surge in attracting fans, media attention, and world superstars, the pattern of its future decay were being sketched by hurriedly trying to locate soccer in the unlikeliest of places, islands and desert cities, Hawaii and Los yeah. Angeles. There were, however, plenty of other reasons that they sh- that should have alerted the league of its overreaching ambition, especially making a number of teams from the East Coast, for example, fly into the middle of the Pacific Ocean for a single <laughs> league game. <laughs> the players it's remember essentially a vacation, <laughs> right? Exactly, or or Las Vegas. Uh. The players, though, remember two things about Las Vegas and Hawaii: the unbearable heat and the good time most of them had when they came into town. Uh. And I can just imagine. Team Hawaii, by the way, belonged to Ward Lay a member of the family that owned Lay's Potato Chips. Lay had moved the franchise from San Antonio to Hawaii because of low crowds. Again, like this, I don't understand what he was thinking. I, don't, I mean, I know they're part of the United States and, you know, try to keep them included in most things, but they're a, they're a Pacific island. They're literally <laughs> the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It's like... How do you justify flying your entire team out there to play a soccer match? Like, I, don't, I, don't I don't understand what... So... I just wanted to add a couple things about the expansion of the league. Do it. So I know in, 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 in the Rock and Roll Soccer book in 1978, Wusnam uh, was in a helicopter and he flew over a Cosmos game and there were like 77,000 people there. And it probably was the worst thing that could have happened for the league because he saw how many fans were there and he was like, we need to expand. Like, this need, like we're huge. This is going crazy. 
Yeah. It'd be like if like one day like I looked at our Twitter feed and or our our, our, our analytics and I saw that for some odd reason. 20,000 people downloaded it. And I'm like, oh my God, we need to produce an episode every day, Rodrigo. (laughs) And it was just some glitch or something. And this, I mean, it wasn't a glitch for them, but it was just, it it wasn't, I mean, he didn't take it into context that it was in New York, New York Cosmos. They were the most popular team in the league. They were known internationally. The other teams weren't because they were constantly changing. And so in 1978, they so in, in, in 77, there were 18 teams. And they went to 24 teams in 78, and they were able to stick with it through 80. But if you look throughout the history of the league, and uh, typically when they contracted, attendance went up. And so when they, they went from 20 teams in 76 to 18 teams in 77, attendance went up over 3,000 per, per game. Yeah. In 80, when there might still have been a chance to salvage the league, they went from 24 to 21, and the attendance was it was stagnant. It didn't change. Mm. So I think the trajectory that they may have been on in 77, where if they would have brought the team down to maybe like 15, 12 teams, I think they could have salvaged something out yeah, of it. I agree. But they tried to grow too fast, too soon. It just didn't work out. No, you're totally it right. Too Again, big. Mismanagement. And just to touch base real quick, just like you said, during the 17-year span or 16-year span of the North American Soccer League, DC managed to consume and then spit back out no fewer than four soccer teams. Uh, the Whips in 67-68, the Darts in 70-71, and then the Diplomats from 74-81. to And then Team America in 1983. That's the, one I really want. That's, the one, that's the one I want to talk about. So with the Olympics in 1984 and the World Cup in 1986 in Mexico, uh, the U.S. and I think the Los Angeles Olympics were in 1984, the USA yeah. had decided they wanted to qualify for an international tournament. The team was set up, this team that was set up in D.C., they required each club's best Americans. Some teams refused to cooperate and did not release players for domestic league, just released them for international duty. There were hassles all the time, and the team only lasted for one season. The U.S. did not qualify for Mexico 86. By contrast, the clubs in Canada released their players freely leading up to the World Cup, and Canada qualifies for the both the Olympics in 84 and Mexico in 86. Uh, and the players attribute those clubs' cooperation as a contributing factor. I thought that was fascinating. Let's talk about the press real quick. So I think that the press's relationship with the league was an issue. During the era in which the league was popular, the press was undereducated and underinformed when it came to soccer. So they bought in when the commissioner stated it would be the biggest league in the world. They kind of held the league to that standard, and not just because the commissioner said it. The press, especially the sports press, had covered leagues that, though they were still developing, were already the best leagues in the world for their sports, the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball. And they expected this league to be the best, and when it wasn't, it allowed it allowed for undue and excessive criticism of both the league and the sport. I think it still colors the perception of the game today in the United States. Yeah. Let's look at the talking heads on TV. Some of the articles I read, all, all they said was, man kicks ball. Right. Not, I'm joking, I know, of course, I know. but I, that's, I that, that would be, be kind of like the boiling down of an article that's written by someone who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. And if you go back to our 1982 Brazil podcast episode, that that's what I sounded like. And I kind of <laughs> sound like that, that now. No, no, you were that bad. Man so, kicks ball. Let, Other let, man chases him. Let me give you an example, a couple of examples. So Tony, Korn, Tony Kornheiser. He's yeah, a talking he's well-known. Right? Yep, well-known. He worked sports journalist. in New York from 1970 to 1980, and then with the Washington Post after 1980. So he is, for the most part, 
negative on the sport. And it makes sense because he would have been covering the Cosmos and two to three teams in Washington. Yeah. His buddy, Mike Wilbon, worked in Washington starting in 1980. Again, seeing those two or three franchises come and go. Skip Bayless, he's a commentator on Fox Sports. He works, <laughs> he works both for the Los Angeles. He works both in Los Angeles and Dallas. Again, franchises have struggled, and he doesn't really speak too informed on the subject right now. And then the last guy, the guy that most bugs me when he talks about soccer, is this dude named Dan Shaughnessy. He works for the Boston, yes, tri- Boston yes. Tribune or Boston Herald, I can't remember. But he works in Boston, and he hates soccer. He worked in Baltimore, he worked in Washington, and he worked in Boston in the late 70s and early 80s, again, witnessing failure. So these young reporters, these young reporters see the league at its height and then see the league collapse. And they can't be told anything about the sport. And to be fair, I do think that Wilbon, of these talking heads, is the most kind of the sports when he compared to the others. But it makes sense. And you see it, right? These guys are the ones that most people see on TV cracking on the game. Yeah. So it has this perception that's not that big, where we kind of know it is a little bigger than people think it is in this country. Um, even now, for example, where the MLS is successful and the press still doesn't get it. The MLS is an American league in all American leagues from Brazil to Argentina to, to, to Colombia to anywhere. They're all feeder leagues to Europe. Basically, the, the, the only league that thinks it's the bomb because they're, they can compete financially with the European teams are the Mexican leagues. And like the USA, they're nowhere near successful internationally as they should be. Mm-hmm. Press and non-soccer fans or like casual U.S. fans can't wrap their brains around this, that they'll never have the best league. And thus, the league still doesn't get the recognition it deserves. It's the third most attended league in the country. Four times in the last seven years, 2011, 12, 15, and 17, it was the third most attended sport. So yeah. higher than baseball. I'm sorry, no. It was football, baseball, soccer, then basketball. I never knew that. You know, I mean, that, that's, that tells you something. Yeah, it's amazing. So European attitudes towards soccer have always been informed by the sense that the Yanks don't know what they're doing. When it comes to any sport that won't stop the action for commercial breaks, it was no different in the 1970s. The British press looked down at the pom-pom presentations, the plastic pitches, the garish uniforms, and the alien point system that was set up to encourage more goal scoring. When the NASL declined, there was a sense of both relief and basically shot dead fruit in Europe, shared by the majority of professional and also by the, shared by the majority of sports establishments here in the United States. The NASL was up against incredible odds. It had to compete against American football, baseball, basketball at home, and with conservative soccer traditionalists abroad. Yet, its vision of the game persevered. While at the time, crowds were plummeting thanks to widespread hooliganism and tactics, and the game was increasingly geared toward results with little thought for the fans in Europe. Yeah, that was not it, yeah, the case here. Yeah, because I in the in the book it, it basically laid out that like you couldn't even take your family to a game anymore because no, it was no. basically it was crazy. What time. what? So the game itself, soccer, the the game itself had you know established laws for play, but that mayhem that used to be the game was now in the stands. Yep, and like, again, and they would they win. would basically if they didn't win the game they were gonna beat it out of you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let me talk about it's really uh, the NASL's relationship with FIFA. So again, there's an adversary relationship with the NS with the NASL. And it's funny because it leads to the demise of the league, and it leads essentially to all the changes that have that have brought football into the current age. I think it's really funny that it works that way. So let me give you an example. Tulsa has this very good British player named Ron Futcher, on loan from either Man City or Luton Town. I'm not really sure where. Uh, to the NASL since he was basically 20 years old. He played at Minnesota and is a prolific goal scorer. He ends up on the Tulsa Roughnecks, 
and is predictably getting goals. In the semifinals of the 1983 season, he scores two goals and gets a red card. Everywhere in the world, because of FIFA, he's supposed to be suspended for the final. Tulsa tries some shenanigans. Shenanigans that don't exactly work, but they kind of do. And Futcher is reinstated for the final. Basically, the, the, the league essentially cited a clause in the rules that's for the good of the game. Yeah. Uh, this, he ends up scoring the game winner in a 2-1 to one game. And to this day, some of the Toronto players are still happy about this decision. They thought it was Bush League. So far as to say the league was the league was starting to gain some viewership and some following internationally. And this decision hurts the league's reputation internationally. They already have a reputation for playing loose with the laws of the game. And when they and then they do this, everywhere else in the world is suspended. It essentially reinforces the prejudices that the league faced for lacking yeah. its professionalism. You know, I, I see that. Like, you shouldn't have played. But the North American Soccer League has its traditions of making its own rules, and that hadn't always been a bad thing. And in many respects, it foreshadows soccer's future legislative path. Thankfully, yeah. it's not. That's a very American thing to do, though, uh, especially in sports. If you look at what that guy from the Houston Astros did during the World Series, he made a racist gesture to one of the pitchers, and they didn't suspend him for the World Series, but they suspended him for like five games starting the next season. season. Yep, no, exactly. And I, I believe there's been other situations like that in the past in American sports where it, it, they really American sports above all else is entertainment. Yep, right. Always and it's about ratings, and it's about who's watching, and they want to put out the best product they can possibly put out. And it it's it's capitalism at its best, which has its pluses and its downsides. And the downsides are sometimes you got to play quick and loose with with, uh, <laughs> the, rules. with the rules and, yeah. and morals and such. So, but I think it's changed. I think now it's not the same way. I think that if someone does something stupid in the NBA, they're gone. You know, they're, they're not coming back. They're, they're suspended. Yeah, or like yeah. You, have, you have like the technical foul accumulation. Where yeah, that did happen to in in uh, the 2014 final or 2015 final. Draymond Green. Draymond Green. Yeah, exactly. that is true. Yeah, it, but it, but again, it's it's taken a while to get here. Like we we I totally agree with that. Yeah, but they had like 12 other all stars on the <laughs> so Warriors okay. that year, so yeah. I think they're all right. I'm glad they lost. That they game. lost though. Yes, exactly. Right. LeBron was a monster that year. Another example. Is at the time the world standard was two points for a win, one point for a draw. The NASL awarded six points for a win, three for a draw, and a bonus point for each goal scored, up to three. People in charge of the league were concerned with zero zero scores, as they know these score lines would not endear the game to the public. You might be losing, but at least people are still trying to score goals. You know, like mm-hmm. that's that's what's good for the game. As a result, the teams that accumulated the most points won championships, as opposed to the team that won the most games. That is kind of dumb, but that's the way it was set up, so you could go score goals. So, talking about draws, there's a great quote from the book here that says, "If you were not good enough to win, but not bad enough to lose, surely an egalitarian splitting of the points is the best possible outcome." What kind of human being is seriously ill-equipped to deal with that idea? So that's beautiful. I have that. Down and here. I think um, I wrote that one down. What that gets at is the in American sports, there's a zero-sum game mentality where there has to be an ultimate winner and there has to be an ultimate loser. And I don't see that mentality in soccer so much as we do in 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 a lot of American-based uh, sports. It's because in soccer, there's no playoffs. Like, the league is what matters. Yeah. Whereas there are other competitions that do give you a playoff atmosphere, like like knockout competitions. But when we're talking about a league, 
it's the best team that wins the championship. It's the one that wins the most games. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that the, that uh, uh, that the NASL did to break ties was they created the shootout. Like, yeah. I think that the shootout is actually a really good idea, and they should probably start doing that now as opposed to PKs. Because I like what the book said. And the, basically the shootout was that, you know, it's a 35-yard shot, one yeah. on with the keeper. I think that that's more real soccer than PKs are. And the exactly. Game, PKs and are basically like... Game theory, luck yeah, of the draw. Exactly. Yeah, that's it's guess. That's yeah. what it is. And they, they suggest, you know, could you imagine, like, at a World Cup, to decide it, you have someone like Lionel Messi going up against the American goalkeeper Tim Howard. Like, that would probably be better than a PK shootout. Like, yeah, and, and if you put them on equal footing, that's essentially what, what people would want to see. You don't want to see one guy hamstringed by the fact that he can't move until the ball's kicked. So. And, and, it's, and like I say, it's, it's, it's like deciding basketball games with free throws. That's not the way you want to end it, like in a knockout competition. I'll tell you what, though. Some of them Croatian World Cup games with, that, with those hey, no, it's, penalty kick. We're pretty exciting. Were, I totally was, agree. Yeah. I know. And let me get to my last topic. It's the NASL and the League of the Future. So names and numbers on the jerseys. The NASL followed the tradition of America sports. The Europeans didn't wear their names and numbers on their jerseys until the 1990s. Substitutes. Up until the 1990s, the international norm for subs was two a game. The NASL had three subs a game. At some point in the 1990s, again, once the league had already demised, FIFA allowed for a third sub in international comp- or in competitions. And actually now there's a fourth sub if the game goes into extra time. Back passes. League officials in 1984 were mocked internationally for counting the times teams employ the back pass to the goalkeepers. They counted this because they were starting to they started to find teams for committing too many back passes to the goalie. Yeah. That yeah. was boring soccer. That is an annoying part of the game. <laughs> but I mean, you, can't you do don't anymore. yeah, yeah. This rule was changed. I mean, you just see it some I mean, he can't pick it up, right? If they kick it back to him now, yeah, he's got to kick do it, it out. Exactly. Yeah. The rule was changed and the keepers can no longer handle the pass back in the in the 1990s. Women so the league marketed to women as, as well as men, as well as touting family environments for games. The clinics that these pros ran catered for both boys and girls. As a result, the soccer revolution was gender neutral here in the U.S. and both grew up together. Paired with the fact that Title IX goes into effect in 1972, globally way ahead of its time, it makes sense that the U.S. women lead the women's game. Sure. And the the fan experience now is a family affair as opposed to what you said back in the day where it was like... Just hooliganism. So the end and its impact. So again, as I say, Columbia was awarded the World Cup in 1986, sometime in the 1970s. At some point in 1982, it becomes quite clear that Columbia cannot host a tournament. USA, Mexico, and Canada bid for the rights for the tournament. Mexico had just hosted it in 1970. Canada was not serious. And the NASL put together a bid. USA had football and baseball stadiums that could easily be converted to, uh, to soccer for a tournament. It looked like the U.S. was set to win the tournament, then it was granted to Mexico. Steve Ross, the owner of the Cosmos, lost passion for soccer, and essentially the league collapsed. Many reasons are cited as to why the U.S. didn't get the tournament, but essentially it wasn't ready. Me personally, at the end of the day, like I wish the league would not have gone away for several reasons. Mainly, I look at the MLS and how extraordinarily successful it's been and that it was launched two years after the 1994 World mm-hmm. Cup. Like, a new franchise fee had risen to around $70 million by the time the Orlando Soccer Club successfully bid late 2013 to start a new team in Disney World's hometown for the 2015 season. Today's sober and sensible planning are no doubt fitting for a league so keen to avoid 
the errors and excesses of its predecessors. Yeah. The MLS is, be- however, that's true, but the MLS is what it is because of the NASL. They limit expansion and don't go to cities that they shouldn't be in. The MLS became what it is now because of Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. I think they came in the league in 2010 or 2011. And once they entered the league, and again, they were all NASL-based teams and are still essentially the same clubs, they provide the huge attendance numbers. They provide some of the most serious fans and traditions. For example, in Portland, uh, when uh, someone scores a goal, a lumberjack cuts like a, like a slice of a tree. Like, and they, I don't know what they do with it, but it's like one of their oh, things. They better watch out that the, the Lumberjack Coalition may uh, want them to change that. <laughs> and they essentially provide the truest rivalries because the teams have been going at it for decades. The MLS has strengthened the region significantly as U.S. national team players play in the league, as do players from Central America and North America, like in the days of the NASL. If the league doesn't fail, I think this region gets stronger a lot earlier. And as a result, I think the U.S. gets stronger a lot earlier. Up until 2018, the USA had been in every World Cup since 1990. On that 1990 team, there were three players that had played in the NASL. On the 1998 team, there was one player who had played in the NASL. I feel if there wasn't that 12-year gap from 84 to 96, the USA might have already gotten to a semifinal. Like yeah. I really do. They've already gotten to a quarterfinal, which is a big deal. It impacts European soccer on every level as well. Hooliganism, mass death at stadiums, specifically at Heisel Stadium in Belgium and the Hillsborough disaster in England, essentially leads to stadiums copying the NASL and making it a family-friendly spectator experience. Because back then, like you say, it was just a battle. I've been to a, I've been to the stadiums at El Salvador, and those aren't family-friendly. Like yeah. you, you shouldn't go down there unless you're ready to, <laughs> to drink and have like a, not so much a great time. <laughs> How many teeth you lose during that game? And, uh, I want you in many ways. So, I, so as I say, the NASL's spectator-friendly family experience is seen today in all of the stadiums, and the game is played now with a push for goals and entertainment. The abolishing of back pass, three points for a win, one for a draw, music, and the constant changing of the offside loss can itself be tracked back to the NASL. So there you go. That's the NASL. That was once and mighty soccer league of the United States that fell apart in 1984. So at this point in the podcast, we're going to you know give our our thoughts on whether or not we think could the league have done anything differently to to survive. And where I where I come in is there's a couple things that I found fascinating about how the league saw itself, and to me it, it saw itself as it, it had to have big names like that was for some reason they found that the big names they needed had to be uh had to come from you know they needed pele uh they had george best rodney marsh uh you said a couple other ones beckenbauer beckenbauer yeah Troy. but the pro yeah but the problem was that i saw with them is that with other sports heroes that are in the united states they all played in in their prime if you look at like like Jordan or, or like Mickey Mantle. These are all guys that did their best things on their team within our borders. By the time these guys came over, they weren't all of their their past glories, their their what they're known for occurred overseas. The superstars. Yeah. So there was no way to tie them intrinsically to the American public 
outside of them just being a fantastic name, or in my case, seeing them in a movie. Right. Well, which, especially that's Pele, because don't forget, Pele yeah. has always been an international yeah, yeah, brand, even yeah. before it was a big deal. So this is why we're talking about like the Cosmos. But he wasn't ours, you know? Like, okay. like America loves to have their own, their own guy. Their I totally own guy. agree. Like, but even though that's the case, he, they were still selling out like oh, yeah, 77,000 yeah. yeah. people. In fact, it wasn't... But until, you see, but, but he wasn't able, like, when... But he was there, like, he was there, he was the brand name, right? But yeah. when he left, they weren't able to... Replicate. Replicate that. Yep. No, like, we, we he totally was, agree. He's, he's a rare, like, the fact that he, that they even got him to play in that league was amazing. And he, he's the exception, because, I mean, there's not many other players that are like him. And it's not, well, not skill-wise. Brand-wise, we see it a little bit later yeah. in our lives, when David Beckham joined the MLS. Yeah. And the other main thing that I focused on was, was the expansion. I couldn't. I couldn't get that. I couldn't get over how well they decided to expand so much. And from Stupidly. what I, yeah, from what I've watched of soccer and what I know of American sports, American sports are very much so a zero-sum game where there has to be an ultimate winner, there has to be an ultimate loser, and they almost, except for football, I think football is the only sport where you see a tie, but maybe once or twice a year. Infrequent. If, if, very yeah, rare. Very infrequent. Yes. So. Soccer to me, as a, it's not really a zero-sum game. It's, it's more of, to me, closer to, to what I would say what art is, where it's you, you don't need to see a stat sheet to know someone played a good game. Mm. Right? Nice. I like that. Yeah. America is we're obsessed. We're obsessed with stats. Like I love stats. I love looking at baseball stats. Like I, mm-hmm. I mentioned before on one of the podcasts. If I'm bored uh, on a break at work, I'll I'll go to baseballreference.com and look really? up. Yeah, and I'll just stare at people's stats or I'll look up basketball stats. So so with that said, I and I found this out firsthand in the World Cup. So when Croatia made it to the finals and they lost to to, to France, I didn't find myself like in, I mean I was very drunk, but I didn't find myself like insanely upset that they lost and. It was more because I was more proud of them the way that they played to get there, yes, right? Like it was good. such a huge accomplishment just to get to that far. You might as well have won it, in, you know, in my eyes because it's it's such a they played they played well and they they played hard and they fought to the end and and then I feel like soccer truly more than any other sport follows the axiom: it is not whether you win or lose; it's how you play the game. That is said a lot in American sports, but we all know it's it's not true at all. Like we want a winner. Yep. And uh, America is about winners and losers be damned, which obviously we don't agree with because that's why we do the podcast. Because we, we look, we think there's great stories in that, and there's great things that could be said about how you play the game as opposed to whether or not you win or lose. We want to tell the stories of some well-known, some forgotten, and you know, losers that didn't quite you know get the optimal result. And soccer, football, to me, it, that it, they embody the axiom: it's not whether you win or lose; it's how you play the game. So with the NASL, they had an exciting style of play. They had that rock and roll type players, and they rock and roll type atmosphere. Era, yeah. yeah, in the seventies. But they wanted, they still want, they wanted to be number one. So they had a very good product, but they they were determined to be number one. They wanted to essentially zero sum game. They had to be number one. Everything else be damned. They had yep. they had to be on top. And in doing that, they wanted to dominate. They wanted to be as big as the NBA or bigger than the NBA, the NFL, and the ML- MLB. But in wanting to win, they also forgot how to play the game, which was to, to grow you know, organically. Yep. And they didn't do that, and they didn't play very well. And while they were playing the zero-sum game, they ultimately lost. And and I think they should have. 
So I can't give them an alternative history. I'm with you on that. Let me touch on Croatia real quick based on what we do. To your point, I, I think that Croatia is going to be looked at favorably historically going forward. Like, they, they put on a great tournament. Like, they're going to be a team that's going to be loved even though they didn't win. And in fact, France isn't really loved, though they won. I thought it was ironic that after they won the game, the two, two of the announcers were kind of hating on them, saying that they didn't play a good brand of soccer. They just were play, playing ugly and blah, blah. Whereas Croatia themselves had played a good brand. And that's what, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's to me, like even if you win the championship, you can still be just as revered in soccer for, for how you play the game. And I don't think we don't talk about teams uh, in American sports nearly. Very few. And even you can look at it like this. We can talk about my guy, LeBron James. Like, I think he's one of the greatest players of all time. Unfortunately, he loses championships and he gets hated upon yeah. constantly. Like that, that's his thing. It's three and six. That's what people always make fun of. I know. Yeah, it's, it's how many rings do you have? But it, but the dude's gone to like ninth championships, eight in a row. Like that. There's that's amazing. Like that. That's gonna be something historically which people aren't gonna get because it's like you'll never no. see that again. Yeah. My thing as I was doing the research for this episode. It reminded me of our Sears versus Amazon episode. Like, if they had just been a little smarter, yeah. this league takes off. And, like, because of the timing and because of the money and because of everything, this league is about to, like, really blow up. And everything they do ends up being what the game is now. I know. Like, that's what, for me, that, that's why I'm, I'm probably, I am giving them the, the alternative history because they were the game changers. Like, yeah. they really did, like... Do everything you see now, like the music in the stands. I think one of my favorite parts of the World Cup this year, because I hadn't noticed it in previous tournaments, though it apparently had been going on, I loved at the beginning of the 28th World Cup, every time the teams walked on, you heard Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. I thought that was awesome. Like, And it's a great way to get people going, because all the fans are like, uh, you know, all cheering mm-hmm. and singing the song. I thought that was really good. You had that in America with, with what they were doing. You know, you had... Everything that's now being played, the, the names and numbers on jerseys, you know, like you have like, I think about it, like I say, you have the, 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 the catastrophic deaths in England and in Belgium in the mid-80s because like players were being put, the fans were being put in pens, not seats, <laughs> and just getting trashed and starting wars with other people in other pens. Well, and, uh, you they could also never take your wife or kid to a game they like also, that. They also didn't... S- they served beer, but they didn't serve food at games, so people were just getting trashed. just getting trashed, and there was nothing to absorb the alcohol other than their their skulls. So, so I agree. I kind of feel that the the problem is that these guys tried too hard to be like an American sport, to be the American sport, and they didn't focus on being soccer. I think yeah. if they would have focused on soccer was, and not worried about their haters. I think they take off because, as I say, within 12 years, the MLS takes off. That league doesn't do any of the mistakes that, that, that the NASL does. The MLS has been around since 1996, so 22 years, and still is only at 23 teams. They contracted yeah. a couple. They, they, they take a real little bit of time before they expand, and they really only go to places that, like, have a real chance of being successful. And it, it plays out in the fact that it's the highest, it's the third highest in the league in the country. Yeah. Like, think about that. Like, for soccer not being that big, how is it so many people are going to the games? And to, to, to further my point, up until this last World Cup in 2018, the, from 2010 and 2014, and I think in 2006, the U.S. was the ones that were buying the most tickets to the World Cup. So the history and the legacy of that league of the 70s and 80s definitely has an impact mm-hmm. on the way the game is perceived now. Like, 
And as a result, because they were so innovative, as I say, I completely give them the alternative history. I wish they wouldn't have. I, what I wish is I wish they were just managed better. Like I don't understand yeah, how they and that's, were. Like, well, that's how I, when I mentioned that that Phil Woosnam was a uh, tragic figure because he essentially had a, a really great product and a product that turned out to be not necessarily the future of soccer, but a, ver- a version, yeah, a version of a future soccer, and they, they just they fumbled it. Yep. They, they just they, they screwed it all up because they were obsessed with being. The best league. The they biggest. wanted, like, yeah, the biggest league, and they wanted to take over the entire sports world in in the United States. And I, I mean, to me, why they didn't look at any, do any research in the other leagues and how well they grew and try to, you know. Well, it irks me because they had it in that strategic plan in 1977. I think if well, they yeah, followed yeah, that plan, that they're true. fine. Yeah, like, they just they, they had ex- it. They just didn't listen to it. They don't expand. If they stay to their 15 to 16 teams, I bet you they're fine. If they go like the baseball contracts that we had when we were kids, where it was on local TV as opposed to national TV, they're fine because you got all the advertising money. You know, and like, and I don't know, I just think that they, they just mismanaged it so bad. You had Warner Brothers Communication and Madison Square Garden Entertainment Group thoroughly involved in the league, and you couldn't, yeah. like, make it last? I don't know. I, I just feel that it was very close, but it was mismanaged. If they managed it correctly, I think this league is one of the big leagues. At the very least, it's the biggest league in our region, as opposed to what the Mexican League is now. And we would be feeding many more of our American players into the European leagues now. Like, yeah. it's only now that you hear of players like Christian Pulisic, who started here younger and, or went to Germany at an early age, you, you you would have that, and our team would be getting much better. So, like I say, I, I give it I, because I loved how futuristic the league was. I totally give it an alternative history. Cool, very good. So there you have it. I do not give it an alternative history. Rodrigo does. We are the Alternative History Podcast. You can reach us at alternativehistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at, at AltHistoryPC, Facebook called Alternative History. Yeah, so I'd like to give a shout-out to one guy. He uh, actually sent us an email about a topic that we're, we're going to look into, and I think it's probably something that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll probably uh, uh, definitely consider. Harry Radcliffe from Buckinghamshire, England, uh, reached out to us, so I just want to say thank you. Now you're well known to the 12 people that listen. I think it's more like it yeah. used to be. It used to be the tens and tens. I think we're closer to like the the 50s. We don't, I think hey, we're at least 60s listeners. At, at the very least, uh, your mom and my nephew and Harry and his flatmate in England listen. Yes, so yeah. and we know we got four. There's four verified. <laughs> exactly. Everyone. Anything other than that is it's all gravy. So yeah, uh, feel, give us a shout out. Definitely. Um, think that we are not very good no yeah yeah if, 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 you, if you're sick of hearing us talk about soccer or hearing about me fumble over the uh, the sport with my oh, I'll go, 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 kick the ball if uh if, if you want uh, give us ideas for topics whatever just let us know we know you guys could be entertaining yourselves other ways we appreciate you guys listening us listening to us very much thank you have a good evening night whenever whatever time of day you're listening if it's you're in the bathroom Have a great day, all. See you guys later.